0: Hi, this is Andrew and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it is Tuesday, uh, February the 7th, 2023, bright and early in San Francisco, which accounts for the strange shadows on the screen for people watching. Um, Last year, we did an interesting show with the Belfast-based historian Sean Connolly about how Irish immigration made the modern world. Perhaps it could have been how Irish immigration made the world modern. Um, He he has a new book out on Every Tide, the making and remaking of the Irish world. It's a book about how the world, uh, that, that Irishness, because of the mass the emigration of Irish people from uh, from Ireland. Uh, um, Irishness was conducted elsewhere. It became something that uh, somehow reflected was a mirror of a world of immigration, or emigration, and identity and travel and the sea were all sort of, in an odd way, bound up with one another. Uh, We're reversing that today. We're still talking about Ireland, but the history of Ireland after 1958, when my guest was born, has been turned on its head. Uh, Fintan O'Toole has just written. Everyone will know Fintan O'Toole, one of the world's leading writers, polemicists, uh, newspaper columnists. He suggests his life was too boring for a memoir, so he wrote Islands, which is an intriguing concept in itself. His book... We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland, um, looks, I think, and maybe he will correct me, uh, at the, the post-history of the world that uh, uh, Connolly was talking about on Every Tide. Um, Irishness conducted elsewhere now has become Ireland as a place which somehow reflects the world. Uh, Fintan, am I being... A bit obtuse here, or is there some truth to those suggestions?
1: Uh, no, I think you put it brilliantly um, and, and sum it up exactly. Uh, y- you know, you're, you're absolutely right that, of course, the single biggest shaping force in modern Irish history is mass emigration, it's just getting the hell out of the place. Um, you know, Ireland is still, I mean, in 2023, it, it, it still has a population lower than the population of the island in. 1840. I don't know of anywhere else of which that's true. And you're absolutely right. Then to think about, you've had this historic process of 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 effectively Irish labour going to international capital, going to Britain and America in particular, but also Australia, uh, New Zealand, Canada, elsewhere. And what starts to happen after 1958, um, it, it through the 1960s and 70s is is a sort of gradual reversal of that process, right? which is where international capital starts to come to Ireland. Uh, and that's really the, the story I end up telling. Um, but, but you're absolutely right to pinpoint it, because the driving force behind this big change is the sense of despair. I mean, the sense that actually there might be nobody left on the island at all, you know, if we don't do something. Um, there were only two countries in Europe that lost population in the 1950s, which is of course the great, you know, post-war uh, repopulation of, of 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 Europe. Two countries lost population. One was East Germany before they built the wall, and the other was Ireland. And and Ireland couldn't build a wall, you know. so yeah, it's, uh,
0: it's interesting that that comparison between Ireland and um, and East Germany in the 50s. Um, does that make West Germany just as West Germany was the place all the East Germans ran away to. Does that make America, Ireland's West Germany?
1: Yes. And, you know, and it, it had been, of course, for a very, very long time. You know, um, it, 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 I think to understand the process that I'm writing, you, you, you have to acknowledge that, you know, that in in a sense, psychologically, at least, Ireland, uh, uh, America doesn't feel foreign to Ireland. Um oddly Ireland defines itself against Britain of course and I'm talking about of course Catholic nationalist Ireland uh, which is the the majority and the culture that I grew up in it's a sort of not being British is is its defining modus operandi (laughs) whereas being American or being close to America is seen as a liberating thing Um, and you you know when I was five of course we had the apotheosis of this idea, you know, which was John F. Kennedy, an Irish Catholic American president arriving to visit Ireland, state visit, not too long before his his assassination. Um, But that's an extraordinary moment, you know, when we sort of say, you know, this American modernity is embodied in this glamorous form of of JFK.
0: And in a sense, Irish people could see themselves or... They saw the people who had left realise themselves. Of course, and you don't need me to tell you this. It was all a bit mythological to be polite.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it, you know, it's it's an odd thing because for for JFK, you know, I mean, his Irish roots went back a couple of generations, you know, but he, he did seem to care about it. I mean, his his aides were appalled at the idea of visiting Ireland. Like, what, what on earth are you spending three days going around cottages and shaking people's hands why do, you, why do you need to do this? but for some psychological reason he needed to do it you know but of course for, for, for Ireland yeah I mean you're absolutely it's completely mythological you know it''s, it's uh, but, but, but it, it it sort of serves I suppose as a necessary sort of myth.
0: Uh, and particularly given the nature of the Kennedy family business and the nature of the fa- yeah. uh, the, the Kennedy fa- family and the father and the war and blah blah blah. Um, yeah, we 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 didn't we didn't we ignored all of that. Yeah, <laughs> that was conveniently swept under scary. the carpet. Fintan, let me extend yeah. the the East German thing. We've all, of course, seen the movie "The Lives of Others." The story of the East German state is one of snooping of of the Stasi of watching everyone. Uh, in, uh, remarkably, although very inefficiently repressive state. Well, there similarities, do you think, between the East Germany of Eric Honecker and the pre-1958 Ireland of the uh, the Catholic Church?
1: So, uh, I, I, you know, it, it would be in bad taste to suggest that the repression is, is anything like what it is in, in East Germany or, or in the Eastern Bloc, you know. Uh, it's not. I mean, Ireland is a democracy, and it, it 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 has a constitution, and it has you know independent judiciary and a relatively free press and all that sort of stuff. However, the 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 very strong similarity actually is that there is something like a totalitarian ideology. So, over ninety percent of the population is Catholic, and well over ninety percent of that Catholic population is practicing Catholic. Right? It's seriously Catholic. So you have a racial monolith, I mean, there's almost no black people or very, very few foreigners of any kind indeed. Uh, and you have a religious monolith because of the of partition, which had happened a hundred years ago, the Protestants in the North, the Catholics in the South. Uh, so there's no real sense of pluralism. And you have this fusion of church and state which actually ought to be kind of interesting for Americans right now, you know, because uh, there are certainly a lot of people in America. Yeah, this absolutely. is a great thing. Uh, I, I lived through it, and I can tell you it's not a great thing. You know, but, I mean, and actually, oddly enough, it's not a great thing for the church. If you're actually religious, in a way, this triumph where you get the state to do your bidding is in the long term the worst thing can happen to you because, of course, it it creates a kind of Absolute power, which is absolutely corrupting. And that's over the long time, that's what happens to the Catholic Church in Ireland. And now it's gone. It's gone as a force. You know, of course, there's still lots of Catholics. Well, has it
0: gone, the- uh, Fintan, or did you successfully manage to export <laughs> it to America? I mean, of course, um, uh, the Supreme Court, here we have a, a New Yorker piece about the sins of the High Court Supreme Catholics. The, Catholics seem to have taken over the Supreme Court and redone it in terms of abortion and gun rights and other things. Um, what, if, in an odd sort of ironic, darkly ironic way, has has Ireland exported its pre nineteen fifty eight self to America, or at least to the Supreme Court and the Republican Party?
1: Uh, in 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 a lot of uh, both direct and indirect ways, that's absolutely true. So a lot of the people who Campaign to overturn Roe v.ersus Wade, uh, you know, from from the start, our uh, Irish Americans and Irish American Catholics, you know, abortion in particular at that time is hard to remember now, but was seen as a as a Catholic issue. Most evangelicals were not interested in it. Um, so that sort of long term reconquest of America, as they as they would see it in their own uh, ideology, you know, uh, does start a lot with 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 Irish Catholics, and of course. You had a huge number, a disproportionate number of Irish Catholics around Trump, uh, both, both directly and then indirectly. In his, uh, so a couple of his um, Supreme Court nominees are are, are from Irish Irish American Catholic backgrounds. Uh, so there is a uh, there is that irony, you know, that uh, Ireland, of course, ends up um, getting rid of its ban on abortion by popular vote in in 2018, uh, just at the time when when this, this same ideology that's being, in a sense, um, defeated in Ireland is, is becoming triumphant in America. Uh, so there is that long-term legacy of Irish Catholicism uh, uh, elsewhere. you know, And it's, it's one of the reasons why there is this kind of a strange disjunction between conservative Irish uh, Americans and contemporary Ireland.
0: Yeah, and I don't quite know how it all fits together, but certainly the, the court's obsession with, abortion speaks to the importance of demography. I couldn't work out from your book whether or not you believe that demography is destiny. Uh, demographers always disagree on this. We had one demographer on the show last year, Jennifer Scuba, who argued that demography isn't destiny, and then, and then another one, Paul Moreland, who argued that it is. What does the Irish case tell us about the relationship between demography and destiny?
1: Well, you know what, what it tells us. First of all, is that globalization, you know, is is a complex process, right? So, globalization is often seen as a, as a process of, you know, this thing out there coming to indigenous places, and Ireland will be one of those. But of course, demographically, that's that's very seldom true because people, you know, have been migrating for centuries, you know, and so 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 Irish demography is shaped by outward migration uh, for a very long time. Uh, but but it does have this paradoxical um, outcome, which is that the, the more radical people are personally in terms of changing their lives, you know, going from West Mayo to Boston or whatever, the less radical the society that's left behind is, you know, that the, it the, the, so the, there is a kind of demographic trick there where the declining demography at home um it feeds into actually a very conservative sort of society because you get rid of your young people, uh, you get rid of a lot of the the unhappiness and the the unsettlement. Uh, and it actually kind of suits a proprietorial class who can just kind of stay in charge uh, up to a point. But but demography, well, in the Irish case, yeah, it sort of is destiny because it, it shapes everything uh, in terms of what why Ireland's like like it is in the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties, but also then shapes the necessity for radical change. You know, the, the, there is a demographic crisis, and that crisis has to be addressed primarily by trying to keep people at home, and that's the the, the dilemma of conservatism. Right, is that uh, it, it wants to maintain the status quo, but you can't maintain the status quo if people are voting with their feet because they want a better life somewhere else. And therefore, it, it has to change itself in order to be attractive to younger people. Um, I mean, one of the weirdest things, you know, is that Ireland is this most Catholic country, uh, it sees itself as the most Catholic country in the world. In the 1950s, it has the lowest marriage rate in the world, you know, because it scared everybody off sex, and it's it's sort of not a not a place that's good for young people to to settle down and start their lives. you know uh, so So actually, this kind of conservatism is is ultimately demographically self-defeating.
0: You talked about that as the dilemma of conservatism. What about the the, dile- the dilemma of liberalism or progre- progressivism? It seems like in a way, you're you're split too. I, I don't know whether. really believe your life is boring. I don't think anyone does, but you don't fetishize your life and you wrote about Ireland, but you wrote about a changing Ireland and you wrote about, you've written a book which undermines the traditional notions of what Irishness means um, in a globalized modern world. Um, The dilemma, I guess, of liberalism is that progressives want collective communal identity, but we live in an age where the self is fetishized. You clearly don't fetishize yourself. What's the connection between this? In an in island today, um, has the kind of cult of the self amongst young people, amongst the business class, uh, the new class in Ireland, has it replaced old notions of Irishness? Or is that the division, as in America, between the liberal coast and uh, an old world between the coasts in America, where the collective ideal still exists, both perhaps a little bit in theory and in practice. Uh,
1: it's a it's a terrific question, actually. Um, I would say y- y- yes. I mean, of course, a large part of this process of change over time is certainly um, a process of individualization. You know, so instead of doing what the church tells you and doing what the state tells you, you know people want to make their own choices. They want to read what books they want to read. They want to have the sex lives that they that they desire. Um, they want to have economic choices. Um, you know, so so there, there's there's definitely that's part of the process of modernization. Uh, I think what's interesting in Ireland, though, is that uh, actually if you if you look at it all the time, surveys always show that there's still a very strong sense of collective belonging and still a very strong sense of, um, of, of collective values, you know, so most Irish people when asked in surveys always say they, they would prefer the state to, you know, have higher taxes if they could produce better public services, you know, for example, they, um, they, they uh, do have a broad sense of, 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 um, being in it together, you know, some of this is nonsense and some of it is, 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 is mythologized too. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it There's there's all those kind of tensions that are there. Um, But but I I actually think Ireland is interesting from the point of view of challenging the the idea that Conservatives have, you know, which is that culture is something that's fixed and and, uh, your identity is there and something that you can only lose because it was formed sometime in the past and, and change can only erode it. I mean, actually... You know the best thing you can do for somebody's culture and identity is 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 give them a possibility of making a life in their own country. You know, and and, and that's that's happened to us. And um, I mean, Ireland's gone from being the worst educated country in Europe when I was born to being the best educated country in Europe now. Um, and you know, I don't think having a very well-educated population um, is something that challenges your identity. I think I think it gives a lot more people a lot more capacity to to contribute and to to feel that they they culture isn't just something that's done to them, but something that they can actually engage with. So so those those sort of collective values, I think, do remain quite strong. Um, and the 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 real problem in Ireland actually is is a division between two economies. So we got this massive American-based economy which, which lands on Ireland over time.
0: Yeah, you're the number one destination for US tech firms for your low taxation. You are the poster yeah. child for neoliberalism in some ways.
1: Yeah, you know, so 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 Ireland be- becomes a poster child for neoliberalism, although completely misunderstood, right? So So when Ireland's used in America as a you know if you only do the things the irish did you know look they were a basket case and now they're and now they're rich uh, low taxes and and low regulation and low public investments do all those things and you'll be rich it's nonsense i mean a lot of the change in ireland has 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 nothing to do with low taxation it's not a particularly low tax economy overall um, a lot of it is to do with public investments, public investments in education, as we just mentioned, you know, is absolutely critical to the Irish story. Those tech firms don't want to be somewhere where people are not very well educated and the tech firms aren't going to pay for the education. You know? uh, so the, the Irish story is actually much more like a European social democratic model, in fact. But as you say, you you have this huge, it's not just tech firms, I think, I think 24 of the top 25 pharmaceutical companies, most of which are American, are, are in Ireland. Um, medical technology, medical devices. Those, those are the kind of three huge areas. And what this does do, though, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a nice thing to have, but it also creates very much a kind of uh, two-speed economy. So you've got this, this very globalized, uh, largely American-based economy, and you've got another indigenous economy, which is, which is, which is a lot fuller of people who are not very well paid, um, and and who don't have the same opportunities. So. Uh, it, it, it's 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 a success story, but with all of the contradictions of of, of neoliberal globalization. Um, you know, which, which is that uh, you know, g- can you use this wealth um, to create a more equal, more just, more inclusive society? Yeah, uh,
0: Finton. Yeah. In that sense, Ireland's not that different from Poland or Hungary. I wonder how we, we've done some shows, obviously on authoritarianism, on its what Moisés Naím called the revenge of power. How has Ireland avoided the the fate in, in political fate of the return of authoritarianism, the revenge of power uh, in in Poland or Hungary? Because there, are, just as there are two islands, there are also two Polands or two Hungaries. and in many ways, the, the the closest equivalent I'm guessing to Ireland, certainly in continental Europe, is Poland.
1: Yeah, there's a, a huge parallels between, between Ireland and Poland, historically, psychologically, culturally, you know, Catholicism, Romanticism, the sense of being um, the most oppressed nation in the world, all that stuff, you know, uh, but you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, the, the, the difference for, for, for Ireland, uh, I, think, I think there's a couple of factors. I think one is there is an intense awareness of uh, Ireland as itself a, a, a migratory culture. Of course, this is true of Poland as well, but perhaps it, I, I, it doesn't seem to have quite the same effect. But you know, you can't be Irish and 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 not have either yourself experienced being a migrant, or have brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, you know, uncles, aunts, you know, who are who are migrants. Migration is so much part of our own history. This, of course, um, doesn't necessarily stop people from complaining about migrants, but it does act as a barrier, I think, to, to, to an anti-immigrant uh, way of, of, of um, positing Irish identity. Um, a second factor is, um, it, it, well, is demographic. You know, I mean, Ireland's a very underpopulated country. You know? uh, and, and, and again, we're just kind of very aware of that, you know, um, population growth is not seen as swamping or, you know, a threat or the, you know, the the far right tries to use the Ireland as full stuff, but it's, it's not. So anybody goes to Ireland, you know, it's, it's one of the least tensely populated countries in, in, in Europe. Um, uh, And I think a third factor is the success of globalization, you know, that uh, everybody knows that, Ireland's economic success is is usually to do with being in the European Union. It's usually to do with foreign investment. Uh, Foreign investment brings, I mean, a lot of people come to Ireland to work for those multinational companies, you know, Um, so there is some sense of mutual interest. Um, And and this, um, the last factor I think is just that um, uh, Sinn Féin, which is the nationalist party, used to be the sort of political wing of the IRA. Um, is the sort of growing party in in the Republic of Ireland. Um, And Sinn Féin blocks the space. It's a sort of nationalist party, blocks the space where the far right would be, um, but is not itself a far right party. For historical reasons, it's anti-imperialist, anti-colonial. It has all that kind of rhetoric and that sense of itself as being on the left. Um, so the, all those factors, I think, so far have have made it difficult for the far right to get a foothold. But there's a lot of anti-immigrant agitation going on at the moment. There's a lot of disgruntled Catholics. I mean, the story I'm telling, in a way, is about the sort of uh, collapse of what was a monolith. Um, but the collapse of monolith doesn't, doesn't make the people who are very attached to that monolith disappear I mean it's probably still 20% of the population which deeply regrets the loss of conservative Catholic Ireland uh, you know so those those factors are there and I I wouldn't be complacent about saying that you couldn't have a rise of the right in Ireland uh, but I, I I still think those other factors probably outweigh that danger right now <laughs>
0: Uh, a few years ago, before COVID, I came to Ireland, uh, I was making a film, How to Fix Democracy, and we looked at your or your I- Irish experiments in citizen assemblies, um, particularly in terms of the abortion issue. Uh, Ireland is innovating politically in some ways. It's not just um, borrowing other people's models. How important should we treat the Irish citizen assemblies and other political experiments in refining 21st century democracy?
1: Oh, to me, they're hugely important, you know, um, because, uh, I mean, the abortion issue was a a very good example. Um, I fully expected that debate in in, in 2018 to be very divisive. I mean, I was pretty sure that people overall would probably vote to remove the ban on abortion from the Constitution, which I obviously, as a liberal, approved of. um, But I still thought it would be quite nasty and very divisive and difficult. Uh, and, and quite honestly, it wasn't that divisive or difficult. And the reason it wasn't was because, as you mentioned, there was a citizens' assembly, which is a sort of random assembly of citizens, um, 100 people just kind of chosen. Um, the, it's a weighted sample of the population. They get to debate and deliberate w- with experts on, on uh, what, they w- what they would recommend. And people were very surprised when they recommended actually a very radical kind of reform of the abortion laws. Um, But the critical thing was that then it it sort of took away from conservatives and from the rights the ability to say, this is being foisted on you by the elites. Uh, I mean, I don't need to tell you how powerful the rhetoric of anti-elitism, you know, is on the right. And citizen assembly is a really, really good way of actually dealing with the perception that elites are foisting these things on you because this is being done by your fellow citizens. And, and it's really important that uh, the, the bargain has to be that politicians, in a way, have to sort of sur- surrender a certain amount of control over this public discourse, because you have to ge- genuinely commit yourself to, to saying, well, OK, uh, whatever the deliberations um, of the Citizens' Assembly might be, they are going to be taken extremely seriously and they are going to form the basis for, for how we try to try to deal with this issue uh, in in legislative or constitutional terms um, but i i i do think they're hugely important and uh, you, you know i i i just i've always had this very simple sense i once served on a jury a murder jury and it just struck me you know if, if we trust citizens to literally adjudicate on issues of life and death you know really complex really difficult emotional questions, random citizens. We just say we think it's okay that you can you can decide this. Uh, and I, I remember being on a murder jury and thinking how impressive it was, you know. And, and it was a standard smattering of people unemployed, you know, to professionals to whatever, you know, really took the task seriously. And you know th- in democracy, we have to believe that actually given power and given respect and given dignity, um, ordinary citizens are actually really capable of of, of, of being very serious about the way they, they deliberate. I think if that's true of juries, I think it, it should be true of dem- democratic deliberation uh, in a broader sense.
0: Fintan, uh, the Irish history of mass emigration might have ended, but of course that doesn't make... Uh, the the end of the the chapter of of mass emigration. And in fact, if anything, things are much worse than they were 50 years ago before 1958. We did a show uh, last year with a young uh, Irish journalist, as it happened, Sally Hayden, about the 21st century slave trade on the shores of the Mediterranean. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work, My Fourth Time We Drowned. It's a really impressive book. She's a very impressive young woman. Um... Is there a particular sensibility in Ireland to the the suffering of of migrants these days, particularly from North Africa, from the Middle East, from Africa, given Irish history and the central role of, of, of emigration?
1: Yeah, uh, Sally's book is a is a brilliant, brilliant book, and and, and I hope people
0: do to read it. It's 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 a really powerful. Yeah, it got shortlisted for some prizes. It was much. Yeah,
1: it actually won the won the Orwell Prize uh, in Britain last year. I mean, very very deservedly. And, and it, it's just it's a great piece of work. Um, so I think uh, you know we we have to say that in Ireland, like everywhere else, you know, there are um, different and distinctive traditions. There's a, a appalling tradition of Irish racism. Um, not just in Ireland but in Irish America uh, of of uttering you know um, Ireland has a shocking record in terms of bringing in refugees um, Ireland took almost no Jewish refugees for example in the 1930s uh, from 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 Europe and it was one of the places that might have been safe for Jews and did not do so for purely ethnic and religious reasons you know right up front official policy was was anti-semitic um, uh, you know, so there there are um, te- terrible histories actually of of, of Irish behaviour in relation to these questions, but there is also a, a, a countervailing culture, um, which, uh, to be fair, is uh, some of it is is rooted in the positive side of religious identity. You know, s- some uh, Christians do take their religion very seriously, as as being.
0: Oh, they should. I mean, if if they don't, yeah. then they're not. Seriously, religious?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. You know, uh, uh, and you know, the, the
0: it's not something you can just wear on your sleeve and pull in yeah, and out when you feel like it. Absolutely,
1: but you know, it's 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 important. Um, I suppose when I'm telling a story, which in a sense is anti-church, you know, to, to, to also say that this is not anti-religious. You know, so so there are there are very fine religious traditions of of care and compassion and openness. Um, uh, th- there is also, yeah, I mean. The the big the big force in Irish psychology and in the shaping of modern Ireland is the is the famine of the eighteen forties. Yeah, it's the big demographic catastrophe, of course, as well.
0: Which isn't made up; it's genuine. It's not.
1: It's not mythologized. If anything, it was downplayed. You know, I mean, when I was a kid, it was still there was a lot of shame still around it. You know, famines leave shame in their wake. but I think, you know, with the reawakening of of, of uh, historical work about the famine and all that, you know, it's 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 pretty central to the way Irish people think about themselves, you know, and we, we were those dirty, poor, diseased
0: migrants. You know? I mean, we were, you were nice. North Africans before the North Africans.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we, we were not nice people to see arriving on your shores if you were in Boston in 1847 or 1848 um or in new york or in glasgow or in liverpool or wherever else you know um the 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 destitution um that was delivered uh to 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 so many irish people uh you know created exactly the sort of emigrants that people didn't want um uh, so you know it's it's it is quite hard to be irish and to turn your back on on people who are in similar circumstances now doesn't mean that some people don't do it i I really don't want to romanticize or mythologize irish compassion you know there's racists in ireland there's xenophobes in ireland um the complicating thing at the moment of course is the the ukraine situation right so right ireland has been proportionally very generous in terms of taking uh ukrainian refugees in um you know there's there's Getting on for a hundred thousand, which is which is a lot in a in a in a population of, of five million, um, and by and large the public response has been fantastic, and really terrific. You know, um, it, I mean, I, I spend a lot of time in a village. You know, I'm lucky enough to live in a village in the west of Ireland a lot of the time, and the village is two hundred people, and there are three hundred Ukrainians, right? You know, the local school, the the local community, and they've just been terrific about it. However, you know, it, it has to be said that if those people were black or brown skinned, if they were Syrians or Afghans uh, or, or if they were Sudanese, would people feel the same way about 300 of them in a village of 200 people?
0: No, they wouldn't. You know? I mean, it's the same as in Hungary or certainly in, in Poland. Uh, a couple more questions. I know you've got to run. Um... Oscars are coming up next month. I'm not sure if you're an Oscar guy, but um, it could be the year of Ireland. The Banshees of Inisher uh, is is one of the hot favorites. Um, Andrew uh, Sullivan described it. He liked the movie as off the coast of modernity. Uh, What is it about Ireland and the movies? Uh, And and how does that fit in, given the nostalgia? I mean, Banshees of and of course, is not a nostalgic movie. It doesn't romanticize Irishness. I think it really... Very much should be a movie that should be uh, watched in sync with reading your book. Did Did you see the film? And and, and what is it about movies and the Irish?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's a, it's an interesting story, I think, because uh, Ireland had very little of an, an indigenous film industry for a very long time. There was various efforts to get one going, but but really kind of failed. So, of course, a lot of the imagery of Ireland in the cinema. I mean, the two great Irish film directors, John Ford and John Huston, you know, but of course they're Irish-Americans. And and so um, they they filter the Irishness, you know, through through Hollywood very often. I mean, The Quiet Man is the most successful representation of Ireland, you know, if you want to look at it in those terms. Um, So the struggle to presents images of yourself, of course, is, is one that all small cultures uh, really, really, you know, have to have to engage with. Um, and, and Ireland uh, is so self-aware, you know, so that like there's such a history of us presenting images of ourselves that we think other people will like.
0: You know? Yeah, and course, I mean, that was probably captured most of all in, uh, in Branner's Belfast, which I know yeah. a lot of people found rather saccharine.
1: I have to admit that I did too. I think there's some wonderful things in it, you know. Uh, but I thought, as a version of the troubles, you know, it's it it, it is um, pretty pretty bland, you know. Uh, 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 and so, how you know, how do you how do you present your own story? And this has been one of the great um, uh, arguments of Irish culture, really, from the beginning of the 20th century. So, uh, good good Irish writers, good Irish. Playwrights, um, not so much in film at at that time, but uh, over time, they're always accused of being inauthentic (laughs) or being, um, you know, shocking. It's a compliment, really,
0: in retrospect, isn't
1: it? Yeah, exactly. It goes right back to John Singh and the playboy of the Western world causing riots. And, you know, and um, I I always think of a thing that um, William Butler Yeats said when there were riots about Sean O'Casey's play, The Plow of the Stars, and how it represented the Irish Revolution. And, and and Yeats said um, there's a difference between uh, mature nations and immature nations. He said uh, mature nations have national pride, and immature nations have national vanity. And the difficult thing with Ireland and the movies is how do you separate vanity from pride? Right. So, uh, you know, the, the 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 pride is sort of is a saccharine image. It's sort of wanting to show yourself in a good light. Uh, and uh, or uh, sorry, the vanity rather is that the the pride is saying, actually, we're quite willing to show ourselves in all our ugliness and 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 um, dirt and and vileness and al- almost I- exaggerate, you know, the the extent to which Ireland is a is a dark place. Martin McDonagh does that, I think. I think. Um,
0: yeah, it's a good film, isn't it?
1: It's a it's a really good film, and um, what what's fabulous about it to me is is. Um, uh, that it sort of takes a landscape which has been mythologized. You know, that's a very mythic kind of landscape. and it it sort of inhabits it with strange people. Uh, and they are strange and odd. But the you, you, you've got to hand it to a director and a writer. If you get four performances like you get in that film, something must be going right. Yeah, I mean, it
0: goes out of its way to be unbelievable. It Yeah, it does. It, it, uh, it, it, it takes pride in being unbelievable. Finally, uh, speaking of believability, unbelievability, creativity, your book, which is just out in paperback, um, and it's got on all sorts of best lists. And one of the intriguing uh, reviews was by James Wood in The New Yorker. James Wood is a very distinguished fiction reviewer. He said, in terms of your book, it's like reading a great comic Irish novel. And, I, and I'm curious, I recently, with my daughter, watched uh, the Baumbach uh, version of White Noise, which, of course, is borrowed from, or not really even borrowed. I don't know what it does to Dalilo's White Noise. But uh, And then yesterday, there was, a, a, or earlier this week, there was a big... Um, rail uh, crash in Ohio lots of smoke it was almost a replay of DeLilo's white noise and delila has always been very good at inventing the world before it actually happens when it comes to that and fiction you're obviously very well versed in Irish fiction and in non-fiction is there much difference these days Finton between writing good fiction and non-fiction the two are so bound up with one another and does that Fit into your vision of of twenty first century Ireland in a good way of being a place where truth and trust aren't particularly coherent anymore. In other words, to read fiction, we read non fiction, and to read non fiction, we read fiction, particularly about Ireland. I,
1: I I completely agree. You know, for good and ill, it's it's one of the great things about the culture. You know, which is that for me, it's never been possible to to disentangle I mean I'm a journalist by trade I fully believe in evidence and truth I know there is a there is a distinction but uh, also very aware of the fact that the public world and and our collective perceptions of ourselves are, are formed by fictions you know um the important thing is to know the fictions to understand the fictions to have a sense of of how fiction works you know and uh I hope if there's a kind of positive thing in the book you know it's that maybe we we because the the irish mentality was sort of psychotically fictional right it was it was all about not Mm. knowing that we knew and beginning to be able to absorb and accept your own reality that's been done for us just as much and maybe even more by fiction writers by playwrights by poets uh, than it's been done by journalists or politicians um you know and and you know, I, I when I think of you know who 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 told the truth about Ireland, yeah, I I, I look more to Edna O'Brien and John McGahern, and and you know, it's true about that,
0: America, obviously, with yeah. the, you know with the Delilos of the world, he oh, really? tells a, a truth that becomes true after yes, he right. writes
1: it. Yes, and it becomes it becomes true because of course they're picking up on the unsaid and the unseen. You know, they they have that capacity to to sense those presences maybe before the rest of us can articulate them or acknowledge them.